This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Justin Trudeau was on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Uh, it's not only making waves in the American side, but Canadians have been reacting to the cover as well. So joining us to talk about that is the Troy Media syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor, Michael Tulp. Michael, how are you? I'm good, Ted. How are you doing this morning? Excellent. I got to tell you, the first thing I thought of when I saw this piece this morning, and you and I are kind of, you may not be as old as me, but I know that when I mentioned the song from Dr. Hook, circa 1972, the cover of the Rolling Stone, going to buy five copies for my mother and all that stuff. That's the first thing I thought of. Am I being warped on this or should I be a little more serious about this? Well, no, but I think we, unfortunately, you and I have the same warped sense of humor, Uh so I... I get it. Um, Yeah, no, look, a lot of people are sort of feeling that way. I mean, really, this is nothing but a fluff piece, as they say. I mean, the the language that was used, I think the word count is roughly about 6,000 words in this essay, and it is so frilly and and silly at points. It, It really makes you wonder why they actually wrote it. But again, it's not terribly surprising. There are a lot of Americans, obviously, who are very, very frustrated with Donald Trump. And the readership of the Rolling Stone, by and large, but not perfectly, but by and large, tends to be very left to center. I know they've had libertarians like P.J. O'Rourke write columns for them, but generally speaking, most of the people who read Rolling Stone, and it used to be just a music magazine, but now it deals with politics, current events, culture, and has interviews with people like Justin Trudeau, our prime minister. I think it really appeals to their audience because they see him as, young, they see him as fresh, photogenic, uh, a person who understands social media like they do, etc., etc. I mean, for people like us, and, and certainly for conservatives like me, this is just a completely silly uh, essay, which is really unnecessary. It reminds me of the whole photo spread they did with uh, Justin and Sophie about a year ago. I believe it was either for Esquire or Vogue. I can't remember which one it was, but it's the same idea. But again, a lot of Americans, if they're frustrated with Trump, will like to see a progressive like Justin Trudeau interview for this sort of a magazine. You know, it's interesting. During the political campaign, they talked about uh, Donald Trump and uh, leaning right, obviously, uh, very strongly right, and what he was going to do for the U.S. and the U.S. economy and what have you. The online edition of the Rolling Stone magazine, Point Blank, asks whether the Prime Minister is the free world's best hope. Boy, you talk about somebody going from the right to the left. I find that one very interesting. Yes, it's actually been discussed for a while, even during the times when, say, Emmanuel Macron became the uh, president of France. A lot of people were sort of suggesting that Justin Trudeau was the quote-unquote best hope for people, uh, for liberals in the world, because in their view, the U.S. has ceded a lot of its authority under Donald Trump. I don't actually agree that Donald Trump is really a strong right-winger or an extreme right-winger or whatever you want to say. He's not much of a conservative or a Republican to many of us, including me. He doesn't really follow the classical or modern definition of either term. He's really just an independent entity. Yes, he may lean right on a few issues. He also leans left on other issues. I mean, promoting economic nationalism, for example, as your mantra, the way you handle the economy, which means that it's an America First program, more restrictive trade, looking at tariffs necessary based on relations with other countries, not the center, certainly by today's definition. But again, people are frustrated with Donald Trump for a variety of reasons, you know, based on the things that have happened in the White House lately, all the machinations that we've seen in his White House with, you know, public wars on Twitter with his Attorney General Jeff Sessions. 
or even what Anthony Scarmucci, which is unrelated to Trump, sort of did recently as the incoming communications director. He's not even in the post-head, and in one week he has caused more of a media storm than anybody else related in that White House. And the thing that kills me is Scaramucci is experienced in the media. He understands it very, very well. So a lot of people are sort of looking at a Trudeau and the more, shall we say, civil nature in Canada, and they're kind of looking at it with sort of lovey-dovey eyes, saying, ah, this is the way it should be. This is the kind of leader we want. But in fact, if you look at Justin Trudeau's record over two years, not to go through a laundry list, not a whole lot has really been accomplished. It's been a lot of platitudes more than policy positions, but that fits the mantra of the man we have as prime minister. This is not a Stephen Harper. It's not John Critter or Paul Martin. Justin Trudeau is basically in many ways sort of a figurehead for a government that is very left of center and hasn't really done a lot in two years. I know people like him. I'm sure lots of Hamiltonians like him, but you really would have to work hard to think of even three to five things that he's truly accomplished in this country. But again, for people who read the Rolling Stone, this is the kind of guy they like. You, you know, uh, Michael B., before we delve more into that Rolling Stone piece, you actually mentioned a name, uh, and we have to address the elephant in the room, and that's what uh, you talk about Scaramucci saying. He yep. he used a really sexual, explicit explanation of um, a previous um, person who works at, at the White House. I'm appalled that he would say that, knowing that he supposedly is this this well-rounded, this grounded uh, guy who's been around for a, a long time. But to, to yep. say what he said yesterday, um, I really question um, what's going to happen with him going forward. Well, sure. Actually, it should be pointed out just quickly, Ted, not to obviously be disrespectful. The person he actually criticized, Steve Bannon, right. is actually still in the White House. Right. That's Sorry. Yep. Trump's that's one of Trump's major senior advisors. This is a guy who, if you actually, the discussion I had about economic nationalism, if you want to look at the point person for why Trump has sort of moved in that direction, although he had these ideas to begin with, Steve Bannon really fits that model. But yes, you're right. I mean, Scaramucci, upon aside, is the elephant in the room. He really has made himself into a, a very foolish entity for a person who is actually very bright, very talented, has been successful in business, and like I said before, he truly understands the media. He's been on Fox News, CNN, and many other places as a guest, and he's also hosted shows on Fox News, including, of interest, a reboot of the old Louis Rukeyser program, Wall Street Week, which was brought back on Fox. The original program was obviously on PBS. But anyway, this is a man who truly understands how to work with the media. He understands politics. He's been involved in the system for many years, although ironically his start was actually at a fundraiser reportedly for Barack Obama, the Democrat, way back in 2008. He's only really been a hardcore Republican maybe for about five or six years, but he's definitely on size. So there's no question of that. But he handled the whole thing so poorly. All he had to do with Ryan Lizza, who wrote that piece for The New Yorker and was chat he chatted with that time, all he had to do, Mr. Scaramucci, was tell Mr. Lizza that this is an off-the-record conversation, which lots of politicians do, lots of prominent people, and then he can swear to high heaven, he can make all the horrendous statements that he wants. He has already then basically designated that I don't want this reprinted anywhere. All he had to do was say those few simple words, and this matter would never have happened in the first place. The fact that someone as media-savvy as Anthony Scaramucci didn't even think to say that is just mind-boggling to me.
I'm actually, you actually bring up an interesting point um, when you use the term off the record. Um, is anything these days, is anything off the record? Saying it is one thing, but can can people use that as a backup? Well, you're, you're right in one sense. The rules have changed to some extent. There have been certainly instances where people said, you know, Bill... Mary, Ted, John, whatever. This is really off the record. We're not. We're not going to. You're not going to mention this in, pre- in the press, are you? And obviously, they'll say yes. And if they find something interesting, they'll run with it anyway. The old way of doing things was that if you wanted to build trust with a particular individual, you directly said to them, you know, is this an on the record or off the record conversation? You gave the the person you were interviewing the opportunity to make that decision, and he or she would make that choice. That's the way it used to be, and most people respected the rules. I think now certainly things have changed, but Mr. Scaramucci, though, is savvy enough to realize that he could have just said to Ryan Lizza, the reporter for New York, The New Yorker, if you want to continue to speak with me on issues and if you want to continue to be a source, then you have to sort of respect my point of view here if I say this is an off-the-record conversation. He could have just simply left it at that and then had Mr. Lizza gone ahead and written his New Yorker piece with that in mind, then Mr. Scaramucci would have been well within his right to criticize Mr. Lizza for not following what should have been a gentleman's handshake, so to speak, behind the scenes. So I think there are certainly ways to do it, but unfortunately by not even saying it in the first place, I don't even know if we can necessarily have this conversation because he left himself, that being Mr. Scaramucci, wide open to this criticism. By the way, uh, coming in on Twitter uh, at TedCHML, uh, Lorianne uh, sent us a tweet saying she liked the article about uh, Justin Trudeau having bought Rolling Stone for many years only because they stopped being about music. And you kind of touched on that, Michael. It's yeah. do, do they want to be strictly about music or do they kind of want to talk about politics? And, and I would say in many ways, politics and music, uh, they used to not cross. The lines have been a little blurred, so to speak, have they not? Yeah, absolutely. They changed their business model many years ago and opted to sort of increase their cultural perspective. Well, they included interviews and various other things. Now, look, obviously magazines in the past have made that crossover. I mean, it's an interesting example. Playboy was a natural example of that, where obviously people bought the magazine for one thing, but there were also these impressive, huge interviews that they had with prominent figures and others that people also bought it for, too. So Rolling Stone is trying to that model of being a catch-all, that for more than just a music magazine, we can actually intercede into other different areas. Yes, I guess that certainly using that business model, an interview with Justin Trudeau, if you like him or if you want to know more about him, that works actually very well. And I would believe that Rolling Stone will state that this was a great success, and I understand that. It's just that, unfortunately, it's such a fluff piece, it has so little to do with the ideas and the issues of the day that I don't really know what it adds to the equation. But if you're all about image, and for the most part, Justin Trudeau and the liberals, or at least these liberals, are about that, this would be the perfect opportunity for them to showcase their leader. I think they're very happy with it. Liberals are obviously happy with it. Most progressives are happy with it. And conservatives, well, will just grumble in the background. (laughs) 
you know, just before we wrap up, why do I have this feeling that when uh, Parliament resumes in the fall and the MPs are back in the House, at some yep. point, some member of the opposition, Michael, is going to stand up and talk about our Prime Minister? Oh, yeah, he was on the cover of Rolling Stone instead of, as they say, <laughs> talking to Canadians about the issues, and there'll be people pounding on the desk yelling, shame, Mr. Speaker, shame. Do you see that uh, as maybe being more fodder for the opposition when uh, Parliament resumes? Yeah, unfortunately I do. I could see at least one or two of them doing it, even if it's just a little bit of grandstanding, just to have some fun with the moment. I think where it may get a little bit silly is that there have been some conservatives who are saying, well, this is going to hurt the NAFTA renegotiation process because Trudeau's on the cover of Rolling Stone. As silly as it is, no, it has nothing to do with it. But yes, of course the opposition will pounce on it. They'll keep talking about that this is a prime minister who believes that image is more important than the ideas we discuss. It's an easy thing to go against because Justin Trudeau is not known for his policy wonkishness, so to speak. Mm. So it's an easy train to use, but quite honestly, is it going to really matter in the grand scheme of things? Maybe for a day or so, but that's it. All right, Michael Tobe, uh, Troy Media syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor. Again, as we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, Normally, the summertime is a little dull when it comes to politics. It hasn't been, you know, and and that that's good for people like us. Enjoy the rest of the day. Enjoy the rest of the summer, and we'll keep an eye on what happens uh, when Parliament resumes in the fall. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. Have a nice weekend, Ted. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We are pleased to be joined by Jennifer Lawton, the Vice President of Development at Mac Children's Hospital Foundation. Jennifer, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ted. I'm well. How are you? Excellent. So it's an exciting day. First of all, uh, there's there's a lot of things we can talk about here, but let's first of all it, talk about the new nephrology clinic at McMaster. Uh, first of all, let's uh, talk about the clinic and what it provides as far as patient services. Well, we are the regional uh, nephrology uh, unit for the entire uh, South Central Ontario region, meaning we take care of kids, all the kids uh, from basically the border all the way to Cambridge, Kitchener, Waterloo. And so any child that needs dialysis uh, would be referred to McMaster Children's Hospital. So as uh, many people know, there are kids that are born with kidney issues and then kids that acquire kidney issues, and they are cared for here at the hospital. Now, this is a, a brand new uh, clinic, or is this an extension to an existing clinic? It's actually brand new. We have, obviously, a facility where we do dialysis right now. It's on one of our main inpatient wards, but we've never had a purpose-built, standalone clinic for this patient population, so that's why it's such an exciting day. Well, let's talk about funding, because I know uh, as a member of the uh, Children's Hospital Foundation, uh, that always comes in line with raising money for uh, different needs and wants and what have you. This is interesting that the money was raised in a kind of a different way. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, Tim and Charlotte Blevins are the people that stepped forward and really wanted to make this happen. Their daughter's life was saved here uh, back in 2014. And after her experience, they uh, they came to us and said, look, um, fantastic service, incredible care, but the facility uh, is a little cramped. What can we do to help? And um, we were we were quite surprised. It's a it's a big project to create a clinic, and they decided that it was very important that people not only um, they not only give, but people knew about the regional role that McMaster Children's Hospital played. So what they do they did over the next three years is they created incredible events 
that raised money for the hospital as well as awareness of our regional role for nephrology and all the specialized services that we provide. So they had a golf tournament that they dedicated the proceeds from. They had a huge decor sale that they uh, did on their property, and they created a brand-new event called Take a Ride for Mac Kids, which honestly rivals the CNE in terms of size and scope, including a helicopter ride, and all the proceeds went to that. And at every event, the highlight of the event was talking about and making people aware of play in nephrology and specialized children's care. Now, when they start something like this, obviously there is a goal. Did they make their goal public of how much money they wanted to raise for this new clinic? Definitely. So the clinic to create a brand new clinic was $650,000. And uh, they not only pledged their own money, but they raised that through the the many events and uh, different things, initiatives that they created themselves to support it. So everything they did over the last four years, they led, um, they donated, and they inspired school groups, community groups, their suppliers, their employees, all to give. So they just didn't raise the bar on the funds. They raised the bar on knowledge of our services. Now this, as you mentioned, uh, was championed by Charlotte and Tim Blevins. Uh, are they local people or are they one of those uh, families that had to come from out of town and, uh, and have their child treated at uh, McMaster Children's Hospital and then had to stay in town? Well, they are from Cambridge, which um, is local in terms of our regional role, because we do take care of the kids in Cambridge. We would be the hospital they would prefer to, but obviously this this is not their local hospital. So that's the kind of service that a lot of people, they realized, didn't didn't know was in our region that, you know, you can come from Cambridge, you can come from Niagara Falls, you can come from any of the region... Kitchener-Waterloo and get that service here. So they came into town for that service for their daughter's uh, kidney treatment. You know, it's interesting when somebody uh, puts their hat on as a fundraiser, uh, champions a cause. Um, I know that uh, it's it, it's a great effort and a lot of people want to do it, but sometimes it puts a lot of pressure on yourself that you put the goal out there public, and if you don't hit it, then you think that you're uh, perhaps in some ways that you failed. So congratulations to the two of them because I know that they really wanted to do this, but, but there's a part of me that, that wonders at one point, maybe they thought to themselves, have we bit off more than we can chew? Well, you know, they were so convinced that not only uh, were they going to be completely invested, that if they told the story of, you know, how their daughter's life was saved and people realized what an asset it was to have these specialized services, that they would be able to rally the community. So honestly, in working with them over the last three years, uh, there was not a time that I ever felt that Tim and Charlotte did not believe that they would be able to reach the goal. I mean, they had a lot to do. They worked very hard. They had hundreds of volunteers at their event that they enlisted. But because they were so passionate, it just caught fire. Everybody that they came in contact with wanted to do something to help. So they've inspired a whole legion of Mac Kid Angels now and uh, have created a whole bunch of people who support the hospital. Now, uh, physically, when people uh, have uh, had a chance, uh, perhaps for one reason or another, to visit Mac uh, Children's Hospital, where exactly in the building is this new nephrology clinic located? Well, it's on our main inpatient floor, which is the third floor of the hospital. It's in the yellow section. Um, and some of the really great features is that it's uh, it's 50%, over 50% larger than the square footage we had before. We now have three distinct treatment areas, including an area for isolation, a, a room that kids can go in. Everything is purpose-built for the clinic. 
It's adjacent to our pediatric intensive care unit where most of the kids spend some time because they are usually critically ill, so they go back and forth. And everything, including the chairs, are customized not only for the patients who spend often four to five hours having dialysis three to five days a week around every single week, no breaks, no vacations, but also for the patients, not just the patients, the parents, and the staff. Everybody spends a lot of time in that clinic. And I know that the uh, the clinic opens up officially. You'll have the ribbon cutting and what have you at 1230 this afternoon. That's right. You're expecting a lot of uh, patient families to attend this opening. I would suspect a lot of the patient families gave what they could as far as contributing to the donations to make this clinic uh, operable, correct? Yes, patients gave. Um, people did their own little fundraisers. Uh, people gave what they could. But what was amazing was how many kids who have graduated and how many grandparents are coming and extended family. We have one family where eight or nine members of the family are coming because when a child is as critically ill as they are when they need dialysis, it takes an entire family to care for them. Um, you know, 12 hours a week, like I said, every week at least, probably six hours every time they come to the hospital. It literally takes a village of people to support them. So we have a huge uh, number of patients, probably the largest I've seen coming out for this opening. I would suspect, though, maybe uh, it, it's a happy occasion when you have the official ribbon cutting and what have you, and a lot of smiles and applause, but I would suggest there'll, there'll be some tears uh, among the people there, and that probably staff members, too, I would suspect. Yeah, well, you know, when we told the staff, quite honestly, that we were going to build the clinic, they had some tears. They were so happy, tears of joy. And, you know, it is a place that becomes a child's second home and a family's second home. So I think there'll be a bit of tear, a few tears of joy. And, um, you know, as people graduate, we take care of kids from birth all the way to their 18th birthday, and they move on. This will be an opportunity to come back. They all wanted to come back and see the new space, even if they're not using it anymore. Now, we uh, started off the talk with um, our, by the way, our guest on the Bill Kelly Show, Ted Michaels, filling in for Bill today is the Vice President of Development, McMaster Children's Hospital Foundation. Foundation, Jennifer Lawton, talking about the new nephrology clinic at McMaster University. You mentioned that it was uh, well over $600,000 is what it would cost to open uh, this type of facility. And Charlotte and Tim Blevins of Cambridge, who got great care for their daughter, uh, Kayla. Um, How is Kayla's health now? Well, you know, Kayla got better quite quickly, which, you know, was the blessing of this whole entire thing. She had E. coli, literally was, um, you know, on the verge of, of, of passing away when she arrived here by ambulance, and she's had a full recovery. Her kidneys uh, started to function again after a few weeks of dialysis, and uh, she came for ongoing care for a number of years, for, you know, to follow up, but she's doing really, really well. And that's why uh, Tim and, Char- and, and Charlotte really wanted to pay it forward. They realized how lucky they were and how lucky Kayla was, and they sat there with kids who were coming for two years and, and didn't have uh, that wonderful, you know, quick turnaround. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, fundraising for uh, hospitals is always uh, something that's there, and I know that uh, that's probably number one on your desk of all the things that, that you do. I, I thought it was interesting, um, and I wish I, I could have done a story just to get the look of abject terror on my face when, <laughs> when, when you talked about, for example, take a ride in a helicopter. That, <laughs> that would have been a great story of me screaming in the background as a helicopter goes over the city. Uh, tell us about that particular fundraising option. 
Well, you know, Take a Ride for Mac Kids um, was held up in Cambridge um, at a sort of an old uh, airstrip that uh, the Blevins own. And it was literally a carnival, um, a giant touch the truck with, you know, combines, all the heavy equipment that you see out in the community. They're builders, so they had access to equipment most of us don't see every day. Kids got to get inside, ride around on them. They had a full sort of carnival area, and they had they added helicopter rides where people get taken around uh, a, a bird's eye view of the region uh, on a nice helicopter trip. They had magic shows, hay rides. It was a full family, full day experience, all the proceeds coming to McBasher Children's Hospital. I noticed that you laugh when I talked about the look of abject terror on my face in the helicopter ride. I'm not that, you know, that's not that far from the, far, uh, far from the truth, Jennifer. <laughs> Well, it was. Well, I have to tell you, it was probably the most popular thing at the event. And just as we were leaving this year, because they did it two years in a row, and every year, you know, people say as as they're leaving, "See you next year." And so I told them they've created a monster because I have to tell you, I go to many wonderful events, and this is probably the most sophisticated bus run event that I've been to in a long time. So the uh, the clinic officially opens at uh, twelve thirty this afternoon. Roughly, and uh, I know it. It depends on uh, need and what have you. Roughly, how, how many patients would uh, this clinic uh, see going forward? Uh, is there s- some sort of planning on what you think you'll be looking at patient-wise through the next few months? You know, it's really difficult to tell just because of the type of patients we take. I mean, we um, it, it, it peaks and valleys like any clinic. All I can say is that every child region of 600,000 children, any child with nephrology issues will be referred to our clinic. So we will always uh, have a a long list of kids who need our care, and it's very difficult to predict volumes with a a patient population like this, but being the only one, uh, there is nowhere else to go. And we should emphasize that that uh, that's very important that this is the only clinic for kids from you mentioned from from basically from birth to the age of eighteen in the in the catchment area, correct? Exactly, exactly. So we have children that are born, and we have one coming back. He was born; uh, his kidneys failed at birth, and uh, he was at the clinic. He was actually one of the first patients I met. He was on dialysis from the day he was born, and uh, hoping that his kidneys would kick back in, and they did after almost uh, six months. And now his kidneys are actually working. But a child like that, uh, that's just the only place they can go and right up till they're 18 years old. Well, it sounds like a, a, obviously something that's needed. Congratulations to Charlotte and Tim Blevins. I know that they won't take the credit for this, and, and, and they will talk about everybody else that supported yes, it. Will. Jennifer, I'm telling you, you can raise money next year next year just to have people look at the look of terror on my face. It'd be a great... I'm telling <laughs> we you. Are, we're going to actually set that up. I'll call you right after this, and we'll, we'll put it in your calendar. Oh, perfect. Jennifer Lawton, the Vice President of Development of the Mac Children's Hospital Foundation. Congratulations. Uh, it's it's, uh, lo- I hopefully sometime we'll get a chance to pop down and say hi and Me see too. and see what this clinic's all about. It's going to be a, a very special day down there at Mac Children's Hospital. You do great work all the time. Congratulations and give our best wishes to Charlotte and Tim Blevins. Thank you so much. All right, that's uh, Jennifer Lawton from the. Uh, McMaster Children's Hospital Foundation, the new nephrology clinic, uh, the only one in the area, in the catchment area, uh, where kids from birth until the age of 18 are treated uh, when they have uh, kidney issues and kidney failure and kidney problems. So it's a very special day for them. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, it happened in the wee hours of the morning uh, last night, the or 
This morning, actually, the U.S. Senate rejected the bill to repeal Obamacare 51 to 49. And joining us for a few minutes to talk about that from the Department of Political Science at Buffalo State College is Dr. Anthony Neal. Dr. Neal, thank you for joining us. How are you? Ryan, how are you, Ted? Good. Uh, let's uh, first of all talk about this. Were you surprised by the vote in the wee hours of this morning? I, in all honesty, I was surprised in one sense, but in another sense, uh, I was relieved that they did not pass something just to be passing something with a promise from the House of Representatives that they would actually conference on the bill. And I thought uh, John McCain exercised extraordinary leadership in this situation, come back from the, the surgery uh, and then go to debate and then cast a deciding vote to put the uh, brakes on this whole process. Dr. Neal, can you kind of uh, explain to those of us on this side of the border what exactly they wanted to repeal? Was it Obamacare in its entirety, or I've, I've heard the term the skinny version. What did they vote against this morning? Well, in all honesty, Ted, my assessment of this entire situation is that it is more ideological than it is policy. Uh, from day one, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, the opposition party has been in opposition, passing bill after bill, maybe 43, 50 times, taking votes to repeal uh, so-called Obamacare uh, without really having a replacement. And then once the opposition party came into power, they really didn't have a plan to replace it. And, and in all honesty... It, it, it's a workable bill, the Affordable Care Act, and what needs to be done instead of trying to overhaul the entire thing is simply tweak it and to improve it. But based on ideology, there are some people who just want to replace it simply because uh, it was uh, has Obama's stamp on it. Now, Senate leader Mitch McConnell, uh, we know him from Kentucky, he was clearly shaken uh, by what happened, and he, he, he appeared really upset by it. Um, did, they obviously thought that they had enough of a mandate and enough votes to support this going forward, correct? I believe they did. Perhaps the, the whips miscounted. However, uh, when you look at the, the entire debate, I think it's much better that they did not pass it than to have passed it. And in all honesty, it, it makes you wonder why are people so gung-ho or so excited about taking away people's health care and derailing the health care system. Can you um, kind of break that down for us then? Um people, again, on this side of the border don't understand exactly what goes on. Um, Obamacare would, uh, and this is kind of a broad question, but would would Obamacare, the way it stands now, provide better health service for people in the states that don't generally have health care than what wanted than what uh, the uh, Trump people were proposing? If you were to leave the Affordable Care Act in place, uh, or as called Obamacare, it would definitely cover more people, uh, provide more people with uh, better. Uh, insurance because there's certain standards the insurance companies must make in order to have a certain level of health care. What the opposition party was proposing was to take that away so that people could actually purchase what you call junk uh, insurance uh, uh, programs that really didn't cover much of anything simply to say you had some type of coverage. But under the Affordable Care Act, you have to have a standard of coverage. Uh, the pre-existing conditions, 
there's uh, in, in some aspects free maternity care that's covered uh, without out-of-the-pocket costs, and all that would change uh, if they were to uh, dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Last question for you, Dr. Neal, because I know we're all both short on time. Is this a major defeat for Donald Trump? I believe it is, but of course he would not. He would. He won't admit to it, but we all know that it is. Uh, given the fact that he campaigned on it, one of the first things he said he wanted to do was to uh, replace and repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, but and now it's time to move on to other things to see what the Republican Party can get, can get done. But I think. They would do well to heed John McCain's admonition. Work with the Democrats. Work with the other party. Let's negotiate and see what we can do to improve on health care. What's wrong with improving on health care to make it affordable and to make it more accessible to a greater number of people? What's wrong with that inherently? I don't see anything wrong with that. All right, Dr. Anthony Neal, we'll uh, keep an eye out uh, what happens. As we always say, the summertime is generally dull when it comes to politics. That has not been the case this summer. Not not, not this year. (laughs) Dr. Anthony Neal from uh, Buffalo State College, uh, thank you for the time. May I throw in this at the uh, the end of this because, of course, training camp has started. Go Bills. We'll see what happens with that, and hopefully we'll be able to talk with you some point down the line. Enjoy the rest of the day, Dr. Neal. Thanks very much. All right, thank you. So there you have it, Dr. Anthony Neal. And what's going to happen in the states going forward? Can they all play nice now in the sandbox? It looks like it is a bit of a defeat for Donald Trump. What's the next move? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A CIBC poll suggests many Canadian parents prefer to give their adult kids money than have them live at home. By the way, Ted Michelson for Bill Kelly. Uh, joining us for a few minutes to talk about that, the Director of Wealth Studies at uh, Wealth Strategies at the CIBC, Tony Salgado, joins us. Tony, how are you? Good, how are you? Excellent. So let's first of all talk about this uh, poll uh, that came out. Uh, the majority of parents with a child now, they're talking 18 years or older, and it's about 76%, said they'd give their kids a financial boost to help them move out, get married, or move in. Nearly half of them giving an average of $24,000. I can hear a lot of people yelling at the radio, no way. Are you surprised by that? Uh, I, I'm not surprised by the, the study. Uh, I find that uh, the majority of, of people um, are comfortable to give some amount, depending on their family situation, it may be a little bit larger or smaller. Uh, but what, what I am surprised about is the fact that people don't really understand uh, any what are the tax or, or financial planning implications of doing such a thing. So as opposed to you're saying parents giving them a, a lump sum of, okay, here's, as we say, uh, $20,000 and what have you, is is it uh, perhaps better to take that $20,000, uh, what I understand in, in the uh, industry is called never money, uh, <laughs> to uh, take that and actually use it uh, with tax implications? Yeah, so, so I think the first thing that people need to understand is they need to understand what never money really means. And for every family, that's going to be a bit different. But uh, never money really means a money that you don't think you'll ever need to use. Because sometimes parents forget that once you gift the money, um, you can't go and ask for it back. <laughs> And so, and, and when in, in meeting and, and speaking with people and families uh, across Canada, 
Um, the, you can't really control what your adult kids are going to do with the money. You can uh, encourage and have conversations with them, but really it no longer is your asset. So be mindful that when you do give whatever some amount uh, of money it is, you can no longer control that amount. So um, are there then ways that parents, if, and let's take that, that lump sum of $20,000, it, it I'm not saying protect themselves, but is there a way to kind of make sure that when they give that money, that that money continues to work for them in uh, some way, shape, or form? Well, there are some ways. I mean, some people can consider uh, issuing a loan as opposed to a gift, and there are different tax rules that that kick in and financial planning things they need to consider. Um, What people do need to know is there are options available to you. Uh, Keep keep in mind that if you do a gift of $20,000, uh, that you cannot control that amount. You cannot ask for that amount back, and that's no longer really available to you. Uh, the alternative is if you issue a formally documented loan of 20000 then you know, do you have the right to recall that amount, and you can, can you control how it's spent? One of the things that really resonates with people uh, is, you know, is there any tax implication to giving my adult son or daughter uh, $20,000? And, and the quick general answer is, is no. There is no direct tax implication. If you simply uh, wire or e-transfer or pick up 20000 of cash and, and give it to your adult son or daughter, uh, what happens is in the future, if they earn any income off of that, then normally that's going to be taxable to your adult son or daughter. I'm wondering um, in in the study if if it's it's shown why these kids and I'm not going to I mean it, it's kind of a broad brush here I'm I'm just speculating why these kids need the financial help is it because of unemployment is it, uh, because of the massive student loans that that some kids or a lot of kids have uh, any reasons why the uh, the average of twenty four thousand dollars is given to to adult kids from their parents. I- yeah, you know, it's a good question. I'm expecting the primary driver for this is, is living costs. So whether that's how expensive it's become to buy property, to buy your first home, to, to even rent something, it can be quite expensive. And, and as our generation ages and, and becomes older and there's more net worth and there's more assets tied up with our older people, um, they are starting to think about, can, can I help? my adult kids out with with the rising cost of real estate, with the rising cost of affording your monthly utility bills. And so I think I, I think we can expect to see more and more of this happening. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm wondering uh, if, if the parents do perhaps give the $20,000, as we say, the lump sum as a loan, uh, is it better to actually uh, go through the bank and have it uh, kind of documented that you're giving it at bank interest rate um, rates? Or is well, there some figure that the, maybe they should say, you know what, we don't want to charge you what the banks charge, and maybe this is a more agreeable figure? You know, that's, that's an excellent question, and that's when you really get into planning. And uh, you'll find that, so currently, there's this, uh, it's called the prescribed rate. And, and uh, this quarter, it, the prescribed rate is still 1%. And, and why that 1% is important is for some tax planning strategies that you can consider. So if you do want to, so this is what I would tell our listeners, is if you do want to control the money, 
if you still want to have some recourse and, and you want to consider your tax impacts as well, be very uh, mindful that there is this strategy and it, it's called the prescribed rate loan. And right now for this quarter, it's, it's at 1%. So it's something to think about if you don't want to lose complete control of, let's call it $20,000. Is this uh, as big of an issue uh, to people, or is this something that we're bringing to the forefront, drawing attention to it? A lot of people don't don't know about this, but w- when you talk about financial planning, uh, you're obviously dealing with people who are dealing with RSPs. They may want to retire, what have you. Uh, this is something that perhaps people aren't thinking about when it comes to helping out their kids? Oh, and it's it's... It's something that people don't fully understand the the tax and, and financial planning uh, results of, of making a decision. So, for for instance, if if I were to tell you, um, would you rather give twenty thousand of cash to your adult son, or would you give twenty thousand of of let's say um, stock to to your to your son? You know, which one would you rather do, and why? And and that's really when you get into planning. You know, the very first question is, can you afford to do that? Uh, just because your neighbor is giving their adult son $20,000 doesn't necessarily mean you can do that. So the first question is, can you afford it? The second question is, which way is the best way to give that value? Uh, if you give 20000 of cash, in, in broad general strokes, there is no direct tax impact. But in, in, in general, if you give 20000 of stock to your adult son, then are you factoring in your tax cost of doing that? Because now you would most likely have a tax cost to, to pay if you have an inherent capital gain on that security. I think the bigger the I'm smiling here because obviously the thing is to give them uh, money to be there on their own. It sounds like parents don't want their kids living with them if they're 25 years old or, or 30 <laughs> years old. That's the other part of this uh, study that well, that I find fascinating. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, the the other side of when I get into discussions with clients and, and it, so it is very uh, fascinating to listen to the personal lifestyle uh, of it too, right? So uh, different cultures have different beliefs and. People come from all walks of life, and, and really, it may mean something very different for them. They may want to have their adult children live with them, but we find the majority of people would prefer to give a, fi- a financial gift uh, to help them get on their own feet and start their own life somewhere else. Tony Salgado, Director of Wealth Strategies for the CIBC. Thank you for the update on that. I'm sure most parents, like myself, didn't even think about that. Uh, so we'll have to see how, how this unfolds if uh, parents uh, decide to do that. Uh, thanks for, for the update on this, and have yourself a great weekend. Thank you so much. You as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.